Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International podcast. If this is your first time here, this is the podcast produced for Strategy International, a global think tank that brings together great minds from all over the world, uh, reflecting, analyzing, researching, and discussing matters of global interest in the areas of international relations, strategy, policy, defense, the environment, and much, much more. Speaking of great minds, we have another great guest with us today, Dr. Panayota Pimenidu. She's a chemical engineer with a PhD in hydrogen production. She's a tenured assistant professor in hydrogen safety at the University of Ulster and in chemical engineering at the University of Bradford, both in the UK. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Pimenidu, for being with us. Thank you for the warm introduction, George. Uh, just to clarify at this point that I have been a tenured assistant professor in both universities at different, at different periods uh, in the past years. And uh, right now, I'm a freelancer as a research associate at the University of West Attica in Athens, Greece. Oh, there you go. So, so, you, so you're back home in Greece. Yes, I'm back home to Greece, and um, I'm open to anything that is going to inspire me and that is uh, going to be challenging and move forward things in the field. Perfect. Sounds amazing. Um, just before we get started, I, I, I want to uh, remind everyone that they can visit www.strategyinternational.org to find out more information about Strategy International and all the beautiful work that is being done over there. Um, I want to start this off right away because you obviously have an experience in hydrogen production, and I want to bring you a little bit closer to where I'm from here in Montreal, Quebec. Uh, obviously, Quebec being recognized as you know this global leader and an expert in hydroelectricity. Uh, of course, it's also one of our biggest exports over here. In the last two to three years, there's been this big debate here in Quebec on whether or not the government should continue investing in building these huge hydroelectric um, uh, plants or to kind of pivot entirely and start investing in green hydrogen. So that's that's pretty much been the, the, the discourse the last couple of years over here. For the people that don't have PhDs in hydrogen, can can, can you explain, you know, what is this green hydrogen? You know, how is it produced? Uh, you know, why is it supposed to be better? Uh, how it, can it be used? Uh, tell us a little bit about it. First of all, when it comes to the new um, energy technologies, including hydrogen, and of course, uh, apart from hydrogen, many other technologies are considered in this uh, energy transition globally. So maybe one of the competitive advantages in terms of technology or in terms of resources and geography in Canada is the, the technology of hydroelectricity. So it, we see that in different regions around the globe that uh, governments and organizations weigh the benefits of various technologies that is going to provide them with energy dependence. One way and one of the technologies that could provide such an independence 
to any country or any region globally is uh, hydrogen. Water electrolysis, which is the most well-known process to produce green hydrogen, is a process we already know since uh, the early 20th century. It was the primary um, way of producing hydrogen in uh, Europe and it was abandoned later on in the 1960s and 70s to produce hydrogen from hydrocarbons as that process, the, what is known as steam reforming, was uh, considered to be more financially competitive compared to water electrolysis. Since then, uh, engineers and scientists across, across the globe have gone through significant um, improvements of, for the water electrolysis process. So we are here now, almost 100 years later on, when we had the first plants of water electrolysis in Europe to discuss again about water electrolysis. Why we consider green hydrogen production through water electrolysis simply because we talk about using a raw material such as water, which is a sustainable source. At least this is what we know. We consider that two thirds of our globe is uh, made by water, even though we miss that uh, most of it comes, is sourced in the ocean. So we have to remove salt. We have to remove salt and saline uh, the water before we use it in water electrolysis, because the water used in water electrolysis needs to be, um, it doesn't have to be alkaline. Uh, now, water electrolysis uses water, which is an abundant source on Earth. And because it is sustainable and it, it, it is pure, in a sense, compared to hydrocarbons, which are considered to be dirty, mm -hmm. while using as a source of energy for the process renewable, uh, renewable electricity, for instance, even though in the past uh, century in water electrolysis, we used to use electricity from hydrocarbons. Now we can combine the hydrogen production from water with electricity that comes from solar energy or from wind energy. So all in all, we have an almost sustainable process to produce a source of energy, which is hydrogen. And hydrogen is not a new fuel. We have seen, for instance, NASA using hydrogen uh, in their uh, space exploration, especially in the takeoffs of uh, various missions. Mm -hmm. So we have the technologies. We have set aside those technologies for almost a century or for 70 years. We have only used these technologies in special cases as in aerospace, but now we talk about them because of climate of the climate change, but also because we shouldn't be uh, hiding this at all to become more energy resilient. We have seen how much energy has affected politics globally, how much geopolitics affect access to sources of energy. 
So we are going to see this transformation of the global energy market becoming more agnostic in terms of technologies. We are going to see technologies employed across the globe that will bring this sustainability aspect, not only in terms of climate change, but also sustainability in terms of dependence on various sources of energy. So we're going to have many actors, many technological actors involved in, in various areas around the globe. So maybe the preference in Canada would be toward the hydroelectricity or toward fuel cells or uh, electric vehicles or when it comes to hydrogen production to water electrolysis. Yeah, see, yeah. Areas. Yeah, see, here the, the the political debate, at least, was that in order to even remotely start thinking of producing hydrogen, it would require immense amount of power in order to allow for this uh, water electrolysis to the point where we, 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 in any case, we need more hydroelectricity in order to eventually produce um, green hydrogen. So I think the debate was stuck around there. Uh, and this is the next question I wanted to get to you. I, I mean, in the current market, whether, you know, regional or global, is the cost of production worth it? Uh, where do we stand and how do countries perceive the production of hydrogen? There are many ways to look on this topic uh, from there are different perspectives. So one perspective is that large scale production is going to reduce the cost of green hydrogen, as it happens with most technologies when they are upscaled. Mm -hmm. At the same time, nobody really talks about having um, the monopoly hydrogen technologies or hydrogen becoming the main fuel it's going to become one of the main of the many uh, fuels we consider to generate energy either that in stationary applications or in the transportation sector so what we see is um, innovation around technologies such as producing hydrogen we see innovation around technologies to produce biofuels we see many traditional hydrocarbon uh, providers, um, big industries such as BP, investing in, bi in biofuels plants, investing in biofuel technologies uh, to produce uh, such alternative fuels. We also see them being involved in uh, building electric vehicles hubs across Europe. So we see this entire transformation now, when it comes to the cost, there is no uh, solid answer to the final price that uh, green hydrogen is going to have in the 10 or 20 years time. Of course, many researchers have attempted to predict prices for hydrogen based on uh, some financial forecasting. But when we have technologies that have not been deployed yet at large, sometimes such models can be less accurate. So we have, we are in the process that governments and um, 
intra-governmental organizations such as the European Union deploying step-by-step -step such technologies at large. So it seems that we are transitioning right now. Nobody can really predict the prices. Of course, the target and many officials say that these prices will be brought down and will be competitive to the hydrogen prices that currently hydrocarbon industries produce. There's definitely uh, there's definitely a trend, uh, and you mentioned the uh, you know electric vehicles, uh, and and I was wondering you know how can this you know hydrogen how can these renewables be applied to transportation it seems as though ever since tesla made it cool to drive electric vehicles uh, that you know the market suddenly woke up and it started massively investing uh in in various ev technologies how how do you see hydrogen uh implemented in in the world of transportation i would say that what tesla did was that uh, they saw a gap and they saw future challenges and trends and they invested in something that was supposed to be a crazy idea back then to invest in a product that nobody else would invest in uh, not just in terms of the technology they used, but also what many industries would have seen at that point in time as necessary for the society. So when we have such pioneers or such industries that want to play a pioneering role, then the gains will be multiple for them in the future, in the short and uh, long distance future. And this is the importance of um, for the industries to invest in new technologies, to closely follow the innovation in research and in technology and identify before others do what new markets can be imminent uh, for their benefit and for their financial expansion. Um, now, when it comes to hydrogen, as I said before, it's very hard to predict how large this market is going to be globally or regionally. Of course, one can predict as a business um, in what country or in what continent to invest in, depending on the support they're going to have. We see that in... Um, Europe, the European Union mostly invests in passenger vehicles, in transforming the passenger vehicles um, market. Whereas in the United States, we see that um, the government invests more in large scale vehicles like trucks and lorries, where they're going to use hydrogen. We see different trends in different regions. I want to I want to um, I, I, I pick your brain a little bit in, in this craze. You know, again, going back to electric vehicles and specifically uh, on the industrial front. I mean, we know that everyone is kind of turning their eyes, mostly for economic reasons, on electric vehicles. But how about the industrial sector in what you just mentioned? For example, the production of uh, electric trucks or um uh, or or lorries or anything like that where are we in that sort of uh department where 
it'll obviously be at a much more uh, impactful stage in terms of gas emission reduction. So, um, as I mentioned before, in the EU, we mostly focus on transportation using fewer cells um, when it comes to passenger vehicles, whereas in the United States, they mostly focus on fuel cell vehicles mm -hmm. uh, that are at a large scale, one might say. Now, when it comes to electric vehicles, it's a debatable area, not just in terms of the of uh, the batteries used in the electric vehicles, in their longevity, in their uh, in the cycles they use through charging and recharging, but also in terms of the materials used in these batteries. For instance. In the European Union and the United States, the awareness that China controls lithium, the main material for electric vehicles, transforms both the EU's and the US energy sector uh, process toward the future. Especially since in uh, transportation, the strategic vision, also their research in these two continents, recognize that innovation is paramount to transform their energy dependence. So we see that the European Union and the US being um, aware of the dependence of uh, electric vehicles on the materials for the, for the batteries of such vehicles, uh, they have considered other avenues mm. which include the fuel cell cars. So they cannot solely depend on a material that is controlled by one country, right. one country such as China, that in a sense might play uh, geopolitical games around the sourcing and the worldwide distribution and supply chain of such material. So this is why we see geopolitics playing a key role in the choice of um, transportation technologies available. I want to talk to you a little bit about gas emissions. How serious is the situation that we're in? It feels like the issue, you know, from from social aspect and even from a political aspect has become very polarizing. You know, you have on one end, um, you know, the environmentalists that, that, that are calling this quite possibly the biggest ever threat. And on the other side, you have people downplaying this, uh, this phenomenon, uh, you know, accusing the others of being alarmists, uh, you know, where are we? How serious is the situation in terms of, you know, the, the, the gas emissions globally? Well, we have to consider that uh, the world population is currently at 8 billion and we have uh, a steady increase of the population growth. So the challenge is not only around the gas emissions, as many countries are developing radically, which means that their standards of living are improved, having access to vehicles or consider as part of their quality of life to have their own vehicle. Accessing the source of fuels to secure their transportation needs and the transportation technologies associated with various fuels is also important. So on one hand, 
the UN Sustainable Development, Development Goals underline climate change, at the same hand, they also focus on the accessibility to energy, to water, and to food. And why can the water and food become relevant to the energy? So we have to keep in mind that when we access fuels, or when we seek to access fuels to support global needs, we have to minimize emissions. At the same time, we have to consider that we do not want to increase unnecessary deaths, to increase the cost to healthcare systems, especially where such healthcare systems remain public and open to access to the taxpayers. We see that various aspects that can be linked to the transportation sector become dominant drivers in the transition toward new technologies and new carriers of energy as fuels. So now our cars are largely petrol fueled and we have to consider not just the CO2 emissions or nitrogen oxide emissions that are considered or can be suspected to be human or animal carcinogens, but also cause other, uh, other, uh, other health effects such as neurological or cardiovascular. So on one hand, we have the climate change, how the climate change affects the quality of life. At the same time, increasing CO2 emissions means that we have to rely on technologies that are based on hydrocarbons. And as the world's population grows, doesn't mean that the entire population can continue to have the same quality in their lives, not just because of the CO2 emissions increase, but also because most of the world population might not have access to such sources of energy as hydrocarbons anymore. Hydrocarbons are not sustainable. They cannot be reproduced. We have very limited sources of hydrocarbons, which at the same time um, lower our quality of life. So we have to balance here two ends. The one is what CO2 emissions or greenhouse gas emissions mean to our quality of life in the long term. Also what this will mean to our environment, to the environment we live in and its resources. At the same time, if there's going to be enough fuel, enough hydrocarbons for the entire world population. Mm -hmm. So the sooner we understand the balance between these two aspects of around the current hydrocarbon economy, the sooner we will overcome and we will overcome the old energy economy and move toward a new energy economy. Maybe the transition at the moment looks questionable, questionable in the sense of creating stability while transitioning. And this is why many renewable energy technologies come into play in order to see during this transition period, not only what technologies are the best, but also to guarantee 
the most stable transition possible towards a new economy because one thing is for sure that we're definitely moving to a new energy economy. At the example I said I mentioned before about BP, if one sees one of the giants of the hydrocarbon industries globally moving towards renewable energy, then who is going to question this transition? Right. What, in your opinion, is the best way to reduce gas emissions? It feels like, you know, me taking out my recycling bin every week won't do much to to, to move the needle. Uh, obviously, we need a, a more large scale industrial level effort uh, to be made. How, how do you think this could be accomplished? There are many ways to reduce uh, the emissions, especially in the transportation sector. One way is to, for instance, start using more public transportation. It has been proven through various studies that uh, the gas emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions can be significantly re re reduced if we use uh, means of uh, mass transportation than using our uh, passenger vehicles. At the same time, we the industries can reduce their emissions through improving their energy efficiency, switching to other fuels or using renewable energy, or they can use combined heat and power um, and make more efficient use of the materials they use in their processes and recycle those materials. We can also say that energy intensive industries, uh, such as that of steel or cement industries, could explore the replacement or redesign of those processes that are most energy intensive or that they have the most significant carbon footprint. Um, at the same time, we see in Europe many energy suppliers offering green energy tariffs or contracts. So the greater number of businesses which sign up, the more renewable energy can be fed back to the system. So embracing the renewable energy means that we will sooner go through the transition period. And the most intensive industries, such as that of, of course, let's to say those that produce energy, but also those that use large amounts of energy and ourselves as citizens, we can reduce uh, our emissions through various uh, strategies as the ones I described before. Um. I want to talk a little bit about global collaboration uh, with respect to the gas emission reduction. Is there any at all uh, that you know of? And I'll give you just a very you know uh, quick example. If, for example, Canada uh, implements a policy to reduce its gas emission levels, it won't really make any impact you know, vis-a-vis, -vis, for example, countries like China, India, or the U.S. that are, you know, that, that, that contribute for, you know, probably two-thirds or close to two-thirds of gas emissions in the world. Um, would it not be more beneficial and much more results-oriented to help uh, the bigger gas emitters uh, implement strategies to reduce their gas emissions rather than each country doing it individually, which probably won't have that much of a contribution globally? 
Well, this is more of a political question rather than a technological question. Undoubtedly, uh, without any doubt, China is um, quite advanced technologically and China also invests a lot in renewable energy, not just in solar and wind power, but also in electric vehicles, technologies, research and innovation. But one has to see to such countries' dependence, especially their industry dependence on conventional energy, on electricity or on coal or on gas or on oil. So one has to see maybe the size of the Chinese industry to consider what it's going to take for them to transform. So definitely it's a national matter. I'm not quite sure how the international community could help the quicker transition of the Chinese industry toward a renewable uh, one to become more dependent on renewable energy rather than on hydrocarbons energy. Of course, China might feel a little bit at ease or in be feeling comfortable that they have secured large amounts of hydrocarbons that could sustain their industries and that could sustain their exports. Mm -hmm. So I'm not quite sure how one could convince one of the largest, maybe the largest economic actor in the world to change and what policies they need to employ. Maybe already the Chinese government, and I'm guessing here, might be aware of what it needs to be done, but they might have a different time scale for their transition. Right. I'm going to agree with you. Indeed, in uh, the European Union, and as you say, in Canada, we have made uh, significant steps in reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, yet we are not the biggest contributors anymore to the greenhouse gas emissions. So it uh, will need a little bit of uh, political uh, liaising with uh, the Chinese government or other governments that still rely on uh, hydrocarbon sources and uh, they have postponed their engagement to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But it's definitely not a technological issue. For China. Right. Um, tell me a little bit when we're talking about, you know, large industrial actors uh, that wish to make this transition uh, towards uh, uh, gas emission reduction. I'm sure you've probably worked with uh, many of them. You know, what kind of strategies or steps need to be implemented uh, in order for uh, these larger uh, industries to make this pivoting uh, uh, strategy towards gas emission reduction? I would say that they have to keep an eye on innovation. Um, definitely the future is in renewables. So planning ahead is going to be beneficial to them, not just to have this positive social impact, but it's going to increase their security in the new market in the future. 
So I would say that the they should see the benefit of investing early on in renewable energy technologies or to see how they could transform their products for their new market. Um, it is, I would say, a no-brainer to invest early on in new technologies. You mentioned the example of Tesla. And um, one says that uh, such pioneers, they have uh, multiple benefits in the future economy. So one incentive might be the contribution to a better quality of life for the world or for the area where they have their businesses. At the same time, it's a clever move to see further than in 10 or 20 years time and see how they see themselves as key players in the future. It's interesting. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I want to wrap it up. But before we do, I, I just want to mention to everyone that you are the creator of your own very, uh, your very own podcast called Global Greek Influence. Uh, you're also the founder and owner of Catalyst X. From what I've read, uh, tell us a little bit uh, about those two projects. How did they start? You know, what was the motivation behind them? What's the goal? Um, why did you Why did you uh, create them? Well, the Global Greek Influence uh, podcast started at the end of 2019 as a personal project. It was not and it's not related to any business. I really wanted to communicate with uh, Greeks around the globe who had a positive impact in their area of expertise from engineering, science, research, the business, uh, politics, and so on. It was as if I wanted to bring together all these different experts and see even at a personal level how one can transform an area of their expertise based on who they are. Catalyst X is more relevant to what I do professionally. Research and innovation is going to be crucial in the next decades to transform the economy in in many ways, and uh, the leaders of the future in research and innovation are doctorates in science, engineering, and technology. And these people are not seen by the society, are not seen by the key players of the economy, of the industry. I really believe that they could play a more critical role and uh, Catalyst X offers them the opportunity to create a portfolio based on what they want to do professionally rather than what it is offered to them currently. Hmm. It, sounds, it sounds very interesting. You're, you're, you're pretty much connecting them with different avenues where they can actually put their knowledge to use. Not just knowledge, but making something they really believe in and they're very good at. For instance, if you go to work for any industry, for any business, they're going to build around your talents based on their strategical vision. What Catalyst X offers is these doctorates in science, engineering and technology to build their own strategic vision and to offer it to a potential um, business or a potential industry where they're going to work. So it's working reversely. 
instead of focusing on an image of an organization, we focus on the on the vision of uh, an individual and what this individual offers. Fantastic. Before we end, uh, you want to tell everyone where they can reach you? Is there a website? Is there any social media that you're active on? I'm mostly active on LinkedIn, so they can find me by name, but they can also visit the catalystx.com website if they want to find more information on how I help doctorates in STEM, either candidates or those who have been awarded a PhD. Fantastic. And we'll be sure to put that in the description as well. Um, Doctor, thank you so much for taking the time uh, and sharing your knowledge with uh, our listeners and our viewers. Uh, Really much appreciated. Thank you very much, George. It was a great pleasure to speak to you and to the Strategy International podcast. Thanks again to everyone listening. Uh, Again, once again, reminding you to visit strategyinternational.org for any information. You can follow us on all social media platforms and audio platforms. And we'll see you all in the next episode. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast. Produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.